0: Turn, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus in chapter 2. Exodus in chapter 2, if you have a Bible, we'll read in a few moments from 11 to 25. We'll be looking at some passages from Hebrews and Acts, so if you have a Bible, there's some Bibles at the back, it'd be good to have your finger in Exodus chapter 2 as we will be looking at Acts 7 and Hebrews 11. During our time together. Let's pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege of having your word in our hands. And we thank you that every word passes through your hands. Thank you for the Holy Spirit authoring human writers to write these words. And Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our Redeemer. Praise him, praise him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer, in whose name I pray, Amen. Amen. So Exodus in chapter 2 and we'll start, pick up our reading this morning from verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came up and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rael, they said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he named his name Gershon. for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During these many days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant words. Exodus is a great story of divine deliverance, but it, did, it often did not look that way. And for centuries, the stage of God's providence seemed dark and empty with nothing going on. For 430 years, the Israelites suffered as slaves. This was for four centuries. And it seemed for all the world, there was not a God. If there was even a God, he certainly was not paying attention. And the scene in front of them was long, and was dark, and was empty. But behind the scenes... God was at work. And that's a great reassurance to us right there. You know, as we look at what the majority view is these days in the world, it may seem, where is God? But we know that God is working, that God is working. And in this passage we have two pictures, and I want to look at them if you like, two scenes behind the scenes. The first is of God preparing Moses who is an imperfect man of faith and action. So the first thing is God preparing Moses, this imperfect man of faith and action. And secondly, God who is never unaware of the plight of his people. I want to look at both of these. What is going on, if you like, behind the stage when you draw back that curtain? When it all seems dark Quiet and bare. But what is God working? What is God planning? So first of all, this scene that God is preparing an imperfect man of faith and action. On the face of it, it looks a very simple story. It just fills in the details of Moses' life. How he got to Midian, how he found his wife, and how he had his son. But in verse 11, where we started Things are seemingly going wrong for Moses. And when we left him last week, although he'd been left in the river Nile in a basket and he had his life threatened, he was picked up to quite a wonderful position. He was adopted as a son in Pharaoh's household. He was adopted by the princess of Egypt. And now he's grown up, he's 40 years old and he went out to his people and he saw their burdens and in particular he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Hebrew slaves now it says that he looked this way and that so was he looking for someone else to come to the rescue was he looking to see who was going to come to the rescue of this unfortunate slave or was he looking this way and that because he didn't want anyone to see what he was about to do? But he went and intervened. Did he try and break up the fight? Or did he go with premeditated murder on his mind? Whatever the cause, whatever the case, he went out and killed this man. Now where do you bury a body in Egypt? So there's a lot of sand, so he dug a hole and buried the man In the sand. And the next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews squabbling. So he went to try and break it up. They didn't want to hear anything of it. If you translated the Hebrew into five-year-old, the man basically said, who made you the boss? You're no prince and judge. Are you going to kill me like you killed that bloke yesterday? So somehow the word has spread. There's only one person who could have gone and spread that, the guy who Moses had saved. So rather than going back and thinking, Lord, I thank you that this man saved my life, I do not want him to get into any more trouble, the man went and spread the word. Maybe he was excited, maybe he went back and said, you'll never believe what happened to me today. But maybe, more probably, he was fearful because an Egyptian official went, would have gone missing. And people would have known that this official was mad at, mad at him. So would he be getting, would the blame fall on him for this mission, missing Egyptian? Maybe he even let the Egyptians know. I want you to know, I didn't do anything to the man. One of your people, one of your people killed him. However, it happened, the word spread and spread quickly. Pharaoh knew by the next morning. And Moses knew that he had to get out of there. And by verse 14, the story of the Exodus, which is the story of God's deliverance of his people, turned on fear. We'd seen it before. Pharaoh was afraid, which is why he enslaved Israel and he made their lives so difficult. Shipra and pure were not afraid, so they saved the children. Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter were not afraid. But was, Moses was afraid, so he ran away. But in God's providence, in God's plan, it was part of his plan to deliver his people. And Moses ran to Midian, and Midian was in the desert, a several days' journey southeast of Egypt. And the Midianites were distant relatives of the Israelites through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. And sometimes they were enemies, sometimes they were on friendly terms. And he met this man, this priest called Rael. You're probably are more familiar with his other name, which shows up in the next chapter. This is Jethro. And sometimes he's also called Jetha. And to make things even more confusing, he's sometimes called Hobab. So if you think you've got a lot of nicknames, this guy has more. But Raul is probably his family name, and Jethro was probably his first name. But either way, Moses found Jethro, and he found him a wife, Zipporah. And Moses stayed there, and they had a son. Now later on in the Mosaic Law, there'll be the statute against mixed marriages between Israelites and non-Israelites. And that specific command was about the people in the land which they came to inherit because they didn't want the idolatry which would come from those mixed marriages. Well this is a different situation. It is not in the land so it seems that Moses is not in violation of the law. He will later sit down. And When we come to the end of the chapter we see that Pharaoh has died which invites the possibility Moses may yet be able to return. But it does not make anything easier for the plight of the people of God. So it's easy to think, well that was interesting. This gets us up to date on Moses' life. That's how he ended up in Midian and he got married. He was out there for a while, he had a child. That sounds good. But there's more here than meets the eye. Because when the Israelites were languishing, if you like, and suffering under slavery... God was preparing Moses. He was preparing his deliverer. He was an imperfect man. He was a murderer. But he was a man of action and faith. And it took great faith on Moses' part to leave the household of Pharaoh and identify with the Hebrews. To leave the comfort of the world. To identify with the Hebrews, and I said we'd jump around. So you keep your finger in Exodus, but jump to Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is that famous chapter, if you like. It's the Hall of Fame of faith, with all of the heroes and heroines of the Old Testament. And there's a lot about Moses. But if you read just from 23, verse 23 of Hebrews 11, it says, "By faith Moses, when he was born." He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Immediately, verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. But in Exodus, it said he was afraid. But the best explanation is that verse 27 is talking about the second time Moses left Egypt. Indeed, verse 28 goes on to talk about the Passover at the end of the Exodus. So it seems this is a reference to Moses leaving Egypt with the people of God for the second time, when he was not afraid and he had encountered God in the burning bush. But the point of Hebrews 11 is to show the faith it took for Moses to leave the household of Pharaoh behind. And in some real way, even though we can see it more fully, this side of the cross of Jesus, Moses understood that there was a reward coming to him that was greater than his inheritance in Egypt. He understood that it was better to be mistreated with his people for a time so as not to forfeit eternal life. He left the heart of power And the most powerful empire on the world. He was in a really good spot. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He would have had the best education. He would have had the best food. And he would have had all of the best stuff in the world. He had all of the material blessings of Egypt. But he left it behind. That's the point. He left it behind. And in... Exodus two eleven, it is striking that we have a reference to his people twice. He had it on his heart to visit his people. He saw the Egyptian striking the Hebrew, one of his people. Moses is identifying with the, with the people. They were not just slaves. They were not just some people being oppressed. They were his people. And Moses was one of them. And at some point in his life, he must have learned that he was a Hebrew. Maybe the difference in appearance was really obvious. But interestingly, when he was in Midian, he was mistaken for an Egyptian. So he had acculturated, if you like, if there is such a word, and he had the hair, the style, or the lack of hair, whatever, the clothing of an Egyptian. Maybe he remembered being nursed by his mother, which had been for three or four years and remembered who he really was. Maybe he remembered something his mother told him. Maybe Pharaoh's daughter explained to him what had happened to him. Maybe he had met his sister along the way. But at some point, Moses understood that though he was raised as an Egyptian, the Hebrew slaves were his people. Think about all that Moses had. He went from living in a royal household in urban Egypt, to living as a foreigner in a rural mid Midianite tent. He went from the privilege of a prince of the greatest nation in earth, on earth to the obscurity of a fugitive hiding in the wilderness. If you were writing Moses' biography at this point. There's lots of biographies going going out. I would advise you buy literally none of them. But, you know, Prince Harry's writing one, probably one to avoid. But, you know, I think Liz, Liz, Liz Trust even wrote one, I think. And it's, it's, all, it's already come out. People write biographies all the time, don't they, of people. But if you wrote a biography of Moses, if you wrote a biography of Moses at this time, is it would have been Moses, he had so much. He had so many advantages. He went to the best preschool. He went to the best boarding school. I'm sure he went to boarding school. And he went to the best university. He was on the fast track to success. He had every opportunity that the world could give. And he squandered it for what? To kill an Egyptian and throw him in the sand. What a waste of a life. His biography this time be a wasted life. Are you and I willing to forfeit our privileges and power in order to identify with those that the world considers bigoted, ugly, ugly, disreputable, and cringeworthy? Especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Everything that we as Bible-believing Christians stand for is regarded as bigoted, ugly and cringeworthy. It will cost you something to identify as a Christian. It really will. It will cost you something to identify with the people of God. You know what? There are Christians out there who are embarrassing. I probably am. You know, in that sense. And I've I've sometimes heard people say, I'm not a Christian. It's, It's trendy to say, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. Or I'm a Jesus follower. Or I'm not a Christian. No, 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 I'm not a Christian. I'm a disciple of the way. Or, no, 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 I, I'm not a Christian, I'm not one of them. I, I follow the path of a na, na, Nazarene carpenter. And they're kind of true, they're kind of true, there's nothing wrong with it. There's some biblical terms out there, but don't use them if it means that you don't want to be identified with Christians. Because there is a challenge. There's a challenge in the classroom every day. There's a challenge in the workplace every day. And it's not just a challenge for young people because we focus on that rightly. We pray for protection for young people. But it's a a thing for adults as well to say that I am a Christian. I am one of those people who you think are silly and bigoted. I am. I am. And they are my people. See, Moses fought when all of the power in Egypt to be identified with his people so he was a man of faith and he was also a man of action and we see here what moses was like he was assertive imposing passionate for justice generous helpful and he acted without looking for personal reward he intervened three times about an act of injustice first the egyptian beating the hebrew then a hebrew wronging another hebrew and finally, the seven daughters of Jethro have been oppressed by these shepherds. Moses was doing more than looking for a fight when he tried to rescue his countrymen. He did not just want to save the man who has been abused or the Israelites who have been abused. Okay, let me show you one other Old New Testament passage. And see Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, if you could turn to Acts 7. And he rehearses the history of Israel prior to being martyred. And he took a whole paragraph out of his sermon to talk about Moses killing the Egyptian. You're probably thinking, you have all of this history to tell. Why why drill down on the fact that Moses killed an Egyptian? But Acts 7, verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man And avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. And they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them. Saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbour thrust him aside saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. In verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So, Stephen helps us understand more what's going on here. It wasn't just that Moses happened to be walking, he saw something nasty. And he became angry and killed the man. No, he had something in his heart. He wanted to go and see what are my people going through as I live here in comfort. And when he saw them, he wanted to avenge the Hebrew. So he struck this man. But he thought that this would rally the people. He thought they would rally the people so they would see he hadn't come just to free them from this one past master. Rather, if we come together, we can be delivered from all these taskmasters. He was ready to be their redeemer. They were not ready for him. They rejected him. They told on him. He was exiled. How striking it is that he was welcomed by the Midianites and rejected by his own people. The the Midianites appreciated his act of justice. Where is the man who saved you and watered the flocks? Let us give him a meal. His own people rejected him. And by the end of Exodus 2, Moses is a failure as a citizen of Egypt and as the deliverer of his people. He isn't welcome in Egypt. He isn't welcome amongst the Israelites. So he's in a far off place with people who do not know the true and living God. One commentator says his character, as we have seen, was clearly that of his deliverer. His circumstances offered no support for any calling appropriate for that character. But do you see, believer, how Moses is preparing us to find an even greater deliverer to come? Jesus was rejected by his own people, just like Moses. And the other deliverer will also live his privileged position as son of the king. He will leave his power, authority and the riches of heaven and he will come to be identified with a mistreated people. Jesus suffered and died and just like Moses, he came to set his people free and the people preferred darkness rather than light and they cried, free Barabbas. And at this moment in Exodus 2, Moses is the one who needs the preparation. The Lord is getting him ready for greater things. And God has a way of doing that. He did it for Israel as part of their 40 years of discipline before they entered the promised land. He did it for Paul after his conversion with the time spent in Arabia. And even Jesus the 40 days in the wilderness. But here we have Moses taking 40 years just to get ready. It takes God a long time to get us ready at times, but do not ever think that God is wasting your time, even when your life is not in the place you thought it would be. God does not waste our time. He's always up to more than we know. He does not work on your timetable, but if you belong to him, we know that he is always working for us. And somewhere, somewhere out there in the obscure, faraway places like Midian, or even the Lake District, God may be raising up a great hero of the faith, because the people whom God uses most are usually the ones he puts in the wilderness first. Moses, I have great things for you. I want to take 40 years just to get you ready And then I'll take you another 40 years out in the wilderness. And then we'll talk about what you can do for me. God was preparing an imperfect man. But a man of action and faith to be the deliverer of his people. So that's the first picture I want you to see here. Is that God is preparing this imperfect man. But a man of faith and action. And second picture we see is the God who is aware of his people's plight. And this is of great comfort to me. Because while all of this was happening, while Moses killed the man, while Moses fled to Midian, when he met his wife and he had a son, all in 40 years, God is aware of the plight of his people. It wasn't only for those 40 years, but for four centuries. Look at the end of Exodus 2 verse 24 and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew and in those two verses are four of the most stunning and beautiful and remarkable verbs you will ever find that God heard that God remembered that God saw and God knew And if you don't go away with anything else this morning, remember those four verbs that God heard, that God remembered, that God saw, and that God knew. And this is the first occurrence of the word remember in Exodus. And it's such an important word in the Bible. God is often said to remember the recipient of his covenant, or to remember a covenant promise that he made. And this language occurs more than a dozen times in the Old Testament. And the word remember, I want you to understand this, is not used literally as if God zoned out and said, where did I put my keys? (laughs) I'm always doing that. Where did I put my glasses? What did I, it's usually on the top of my head, by the way, but what did I say to Abraham, to Isaac, and to who? No, he's omnipotent, omnipotent. omnipotent, sorry I'm struggling there, omnipotent but he doesn't forget or lose track of things God's remembering involves moving towards the object of his memory for God to remember is to act to forget is to refuse to respond if you are a believer this morning you have to understand what God remembers and what He forgets. He remembers His covenant. He remembers His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did He promise them? Three things: I will give you land, I will give you make you a great nation, I will be your God, and you will be My people. And I have not forgotten that. He remembers His promises, but He forgets your sin. Jeremiah thirty-one verse thirty-four. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Are you confused about what God remembers and what He forgets? You have it so much backwards if you think, God does not remember me or the promises that He made. All the stories in the Bible are nice for them, but none of it is true for me. God has forgotten me. Some of you think about God who always remembers your sin, that He's making a list and He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who is naughty and nice It's Christmas time, isn't it? And if your God is no better than Santa, you are of all people most to be pitied because there is a far better God. Because he remembers his covenant promises. He remembers his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God promised Abraham to be a God to him and to his children and to his children's children to give them land, to multiply them, to make them a great nation and in in his seed, bless the nations when they came down to egypt they weren't a great nation they were 70 people but now here they are they have multiplied and prospered even amidst the most terrible suffering and now we see god has been working all the time to keep his promises he prepares a deliverer in moses so his covenant might be fulfilled that he might lead them from slavery to the promised land It must have looked to the Israelites like God had forgotten them. It must have looked like God was not listening. All those years of suffering and groaning and crying. God was doing nothing, it must have seemed to them. But unseen, those plates were moving deep below the surface. God was working things together. The brutality of Pharaoh. Yes, the brutality of Pharaoh. Yes, the courage of the midwives. Yes, the courage of Moses' mother. Yes, the wisdom of his sister. Yes, the compassion of the princess of Egypt. Yes, the education in the pagan courts of the king. Even the murderous actions of Moses. And 40 years being humbled in the desert. All of these things God ordered and superintended to keep his promises to Israel. And to prepare for them a suitable saviour a redeemer. And that is how God continues to remember his covenant with us. Not so much by fixing our problems always. Although he is gracious and to intervene when we cry out. And bring us out of our trials in his mercy. But the heart of his answer. His faithfulness to his covenant. Is not so much to fix our problems as to provide a safety. Not to give us a solution, but a deliverer. He prepared Moses for Israel, my friends, and He has given the Lord Jesus Christ for us. You're groaning and crying when under terrible trials. Where is God? What is He doing? How can I be sure that he hears and sees and knows? You can be sure we know that He has heard and seen and knows. Because of the cross. Because he prepared a deliverer. Because Jesus Christ has come. He can save you from your sins. And he can strengthen you in your sorrows. And one day, one day our hope, our eternal hope is that he will come again in glory. To deliver you forever from your suffering. My dear friend, God has kept his covenant with you. He has remembered his covenant Because he has provided the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's proven that he is faithful to his promises. So as you cry out to him. Bolster and garrison your faith. By looking at the cross. My friend the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And lift up your eyes to see that he sits on the throne. The sufficient saviour. Whom God has prepared and provided to deliver you. We have a God who never forgets his promises. But who takes our sins. And he buries them. This is a beautiful thought. He buries them in the wonderful merciful ocean. Of divine forgetfulness. And then we come to the very end of Exodus 2. And it's one of my most favourite verses in all the Bible. Because it's so simple. But it's so surprising. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Knew what? It is unusual to have an indirect, not to have an indirect object after no. That's why some people try to translate it passively. As if he in himself had made himself known. The NIV translates, So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. That is not what it says. It says, God knew. It just simply says, God knew. I could read you all the Hebrew, but I wouldn't even be able to pronounce it, so I'm not even going to make an attempt. But it says, God knew. And sometimes the most powerful thing that you can do to help people in their suffering is not to say much, but just to be there. To see what they, to to listen to them, remember, and then simply say, I know. That's what people need to know in suffering. People going through cancer. You can't fix it. But you can be there. And say, I know. Not that you know exactly, but you know. God had not done anything to save his people at this point. He had a plan. He had Moses and the midwives. He had a lot of things happening. But for four centuries, it looked like it was bare, empty and dark, but this is what we know that God saw, that God heard, that God remembered, and God knew. Now I don't know what suffering that you're going through or how long it will last. But I and I do not know what God is doing or why He hasn't given you the relief that you have been pleading for. But I do know on the authority of God's word that God knows. And sometimes That is the best thing that we can know is that God knows. So when you cry out to Him day after day, month after month, year after year for a lifetime, and you wonder, where is He? And what is He doing? Just like they did for 400 years, He has not forgotten. He has heard every prayer. He has, because God knows. Whatever you're doing, Act, believe, and know that God knows. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.